0: Welcome back to Supreme Myths. I am so excited today. I always say that, but actually today, I'm more excited than most days because today um, I have, a, as my guest, my, my good friend and someone I've known for a very long time, Professor Eric Berger uh, of the University of Nebraska Law School. Eric is a graduate of Brown, undergraduate, and then Columbia Law School. He clerked for Judge Garland. Um, maybe we'll talk about that for a few minutes too uh, as the pod goes on. Uh, he worked for General and Block. He is a six-time Professor of the Year, or at least that's, maybe, that's maybe, maybe it's more than that by now. That doesn't surprise me, because I know Eric is a great teacher and takes that very seriously. He is a prolific constitutional law scholar. He is also a prolific scholar when it comes to statutory interpretation. And he is, quite frankly, one of the most thoughtful scholars I know uh, uh, around. So, Eric, thanks so much for being here.
1: Well, it's a delight to be here. Thanks for inviting me, and thank you for the overly generous introduction.
0: Yeah, I know it was, it was actually it was under generous. All right, well, you have a new article that's going to come out called "Constitutional Conceits in Statutory Interpretation," um, and and we're going to get to that in just a couple of minutes. Um, Victoria Nurse of Georgetown Law School was on this podcast a few months ago, and Victoria, like Eric, and Eric's one of the few people like this like her. They're both experts in both constitutional interpretation and statutory interpretation. And those are different things, um, or can be different things. So um, I'm really happy to have you on for both of your expertises there. Before we get to that, though, so um, we met a long time ago at a, at a Boondago law conference um, on a tennis court, and we've been close friends ever since. And I've always thought of you, um, frankly, as a, it's going to sound terrible, but a little bit of a younger brother, because I am much older. I am sadly much, much older than you, um, and we've always gotten along. Um, and you are not on Twitter. You are not on Facebook. You don't pub- you, you, you're don't you a prolific scholar, but you don't publish your articles on those social media places. Um, and I just want to start by asking you, because I think a lot of the people listening to this will be interested in this. How have you resisted and why have you resisted social media? Uh,
1: well, I don't know if I have a really coherent, uh, well-thought-out answer to that. Um, I did try out Twitter for a little while, and I found the medium really frustrating. I found the you know, what is it, 140 characters? Or,
0: That's 280 now, know, but okay.
1: Wait. <laughs> okay. So, you know, I found it very hard to say something uh, nuanced and um, careful and thoughtful using such a uh, limited number of characters. Uh, I know there are scholars who use it very effectively, so I think it probably speaks more to my impatience with <laughs> uh, learning the technology than uh, than anything else. But But to some extent, I do think you know, we have this soundbite media culture where, you know, lots of people are consuming the news in very short snippets. And I think that is one of the causes of our deep political dysfunction and our deep partisanship. There are many, many other causes. It might only be a small cause, but I think it's part of the cause. And I, I think as a law professor, I tend to like to give long-winded on the one hand, on the other hand, kind of answers you know, which might drive my students somewhat nuts. Well, but obviously not it,
0: since you're six-time professor of the year, but go ahead.
1: <laughs> um, you know, but I, but, 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 but I think, you know, I try to do justice to the complexity of problems, to the arguments on both sides, and I just found it very, very difficult to do that on uh, on, on Twitter. And to some extent, I also looked around a little bit, and I saw there were lots of great people already on it like you, <laughs> and I didn't know if I, you know, in that kind of medium... I would be able to like sort of carve out a place for my own voice. I think I can with, you know, my law review articles and some other uh, other things that I've, I've worked on and, and, and done. But I, I guess I just, at the, at the end of the day, it wasn't a medium I felt terribly comfortable
0: with. Well, wow. um, You know, and then when the
1: 2020 election happened and, you know, so much disinformation was spread through social media, I suppose it was, you know, maybe not a carefully considered, um, reaction or a rejection to that. But, um, you know, right around leading up to that election, I had a sabbatical. And one of the things I was thinking about was, well, you know, I actually probably need to rethink this because I know it is a way to get your your ideas out there. It's a way to engage not only whether the scholars, but maybe more importantly, the media and other people. Um, you know, and then the 2020 election happened and, you know, you had a sense or I had a sense of, the extent to which social media really played a huge role in spreading disinformation and i just sort of thought i don't want anything to do with it um you know I, I guess i should emphasize that um i'm not at all sure i'm right about that it's it's always something in the back of my mind that i think i ought to reconsider um but with everything else going on in my life you know teaching research helping yep. run a law school raising kids it's always something I've, I've kept on putting off i am thinking of writing a book at some point and i know Publishers often will you will have
0: to it. you they will make you do it probably yeah. right <laughs> um, no that's a great answer Eric and I I respect it a lot um, and you one of the things that I really do respect about you being serious for a second is you don't like sound bites you like thoughtful answers um, in, in any medium um, I, I'm just going di- to digress for a minute because I like getting personal we met when um, I was signed up for a tennis tournament. And you were late entry to the tennis tournament and walked into the room. No one knew who you I were.
1: I, up, I think I woke up late. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it, was
0: your, it was your first year at this particular conference tennis tournament. which And this conference tennis tournament was taken way too seriously by way too many people, not by you and me. But when you walked up, um, the former dean of West Virginia Law School um, was the, uh, making the uh, tennis um, matchups. And he asked you, how, uh, are you good? And we different, there were a lot of different levels represented from college-level players to good high school players to good players to not good players. And you gave a very long-winded, thoughtful answer to the question, how good a tennis player are you, which ended up being way overly modest and underestimating your skills. Um, but, but I remember that's the first time I ever heard you speak, and I thought that's the most thoughtful answer anyone can give to that particular question. And I, <laughs> and I knew we would be friends <laughs> from, that, from that point forward. All right, we'll leave all that behind us. Um Constitutional conceits in statutory interpretation. I want to know why the word "conceit" what, in that title. What do you mean by that? And and what is right. the function of that word?
1: Um. Well, I, I. If it's okay, let me just take a tiny step back yes. and summarize my thesis because yes. I think that'll help situate why yes. I use that word. Yes. So, um, you know, as you know, and I think a lot of people who follow the court know, the current Supreme Court is in about the fact that textualism is the way that courts should interpret statutes. Um, I uh, I think Justice, uh, the late Justice Scalia um, is probably the most famous proponent of that idea and actually did an enormous amount to change not only the way the Supreme Court, but lower courts also interpreted statutes. And many of the justices on today's Supreme Courts um, very explicitly embrace that textualist reasoning and say you you can only interpret statutes by looking, interpreting the text, resort to other factors like legislative history is is inappropriate. Um, In this article, I look at three uh, very recent and three of the most important statutory decisions that the Roberts Court has made, and I argue, uh, I hope persuasively, um, I actually don't think it's a relatively close call, that these three cases are emphatically atextual. Uh, whatever else you might say about the Supreme Court's interpretation of the statutes in these three cases, and I can talk more about them in detail later, uh, the court is not engaging in really textual analysis. Um, So if the court is abandoning what it uh, professes to be its preferred methodology for interpreting statutes textualist, the question is, well, what is driving the court's interpretation of these cases? And what I argue is it's what I call constitutional conceits. And uh, by constitutional conceits, I mean the justices, the conservative justices sort of sensibilities about what they think the constitution should mean. Um, and as opposed to what constitutional law already says. So in other words, we, there are some constitutional based canons of statutory interpretation, and there, which, have a relative, which have a relatively long pedigree in which the court will interpret statutes in light of particular constitutional concerns. So one of probably the uh, the longest pedigree of those would be the constitutional avoidance canon, which basically says, you know, if you have an ambiguous statute, you can have one reading or the other. If one of the readings would uh, be unconstitutional or pose a very serious constitutional question, you pick the other reading.
0: Eric, hold on um, one second. That's a great, I, I, I like that description. Um. The constitutional – because there are non-lawyers not listening. The constitutional avoidance canon in lay terms basically means if you can avoid a constitutional question, avoid the constitutional question because, yes. because Congress can always change the statutory interpretation, interpretation, but it can't change the court's constitutional interpretation is one of the That's reasons, that, I think. But it I, but I, but I, but I, but I wouldn't be me if I didn't point out the very first major con law case ever and the father case of con law, Marbury versus Madison, the court, in fact, did exactly the opposite of that canon. The court read a That's statute it. unconstitutionally when there were a thousand ways to read it constitutionally, which got all of constitutional law off to a very bad start. That was for the, <laughs> right. the, law, the lawyers and law professors in the audience. I, I just want to throw that in there. All right, keep going. Sorry. Um, um,
1: well, and, 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 and it's an important point because the court, you know, applies these canons and rules of statutory interpretation, except when it doesn't. Right. As, <laughs> as, you're, as you're pointing out. Yeah. Um, but, but the reason I use the word conceits is because um, these are not cases where the statutes interpreted according to the text would be unconstitutional under current doctrine. Right. Uh, nor do I think that there is a strong argument that they would be unconstitutional under current doctrine. So in other words, the justices are reinterpreting these statutes. The justices are, Ignoring the text of these statutes because of constitutional concerns that some of the justices have that are unconnected to contemporary constitutional law, um, and one of the things I, I I do kind of midway through the article is I say, you know, I I look at some of the modalities of constitutional interpretation, you know, the various ways in which judges and scholars interpret the constitution, you know, so you look at text, you look at history, you look at structure, and so on and so on. Values. And I say actually under most of these modalities, this these statutes would be constitutional. So in other words, the justices are ignoring the statutory text. They are abandoning their commitment to this methodology for interpreting statutes on the basis of constitutional concerns that are rooted, and this is a very Eric Siegel point, that are rooted far more in their own constitutional sensibilities and their own values rather than in constitutional law, the black letter law that you would find in a treatise or in, or in case law.
0: So Eric, when I read your article um, uh, yesterday, um, oh. The three cases you talk about are great examples of this, but before, I I don't know how much in the weeds I want to get to those three cases. I want to ask you a question about your major dominant thesis, which is this. It it strikes me maybe there are two big problems with assuming what you're describing is true, and by the way, it is, (laughs) in my opinion. Um, One issue is a lack of transparency, right? We say we're textualists, but when we actually go out and decide cases, we're not. That's kind of a, a, a transparency issue. Second, substantively, the court is literally changing what Congress said because of constitutional concerns. Are those the two things you're worried about in this, or is there something I'm missing?
1: I mean, I think those are certainly two of the concerns. Um, You know, I think there's certainly a bait and switch uh, on Congress, where Congress is writing statutes expecting they'll be interpreted in a particular way, and the court is changing the rules of the game. Uh, You know, if you want to, we can get a little more into the major questions doctrine, which would be an example of that, where Congress writes very broad statutes saying we want the agency to take care of this kind of problem. You know, moving forward, we realize there are going to be other examples of these sorts of problems. Take, you know, the Clean Air Act, take workplace safety, and um, we don't know what those future problems are going to look like. But we also know that we're not good at responding to new problems, so we want to delegate that to the agency. And the court is saying, yeah, you know, no, you didn't, you didn't delegate with sufficient enough specificity, even though when Congress wrote those statutes, it thought it was, you know, being very clear and, and, uh, and, and delegating that, uh, that broad authority. So, you know, and there's, there's obviously a, a hypocrisy to it. And I think, you know, it's part of a broader mission to undermine federal power. Um, I, you know, I think um, the, you know, one of the hallmarks of the Roberts Court is it's trying to limit not only the power of administrative agencies, and there's obviously been a lot of scholarship on that with major questions doctrine and uh, and 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 other doctrines, um, but also Congress, um, especially when they're doing um, things that the conservatives don't like. In other right. words, right. especially if they're progressive. Their progressive policy. Um, so I think it's problematic for lots of reasons, including the ones you you
0: identify. So Mark with. Lemley, who is an IP professor, I believe, um, at Stanford or wherever he is, yeah, sure. yeah, um, the,
1: the Imperial Supreme Court, yeah, is that the Imperial, yes, the, yeah,
0: uh, yeah. The, he wrote a, a Harvard Law Review essay, um, oh. and and his major point, I think, which is very similar to a point you're making in this piece, and I know you, I think you made before, is is a lot of what the court is doing in statutory interpretation is taking power for itself. It's saying we ultimately will be the decider um, and everyone in the world knows how I feel about that. So we don't have to discuss that right now. I mean, everyone listening to this. knows how I feel about that. But I, why don't we do this? Yeah. Can you can you tell the story of the. Go ahead. No, hey, can me. I just add
1: one thing about that? I, yeah. mean, I, I think that's exactly right. That this power is this court is aggrandizing its own power, um, you know, and you uh, and others have been making that point about the Supreme Court for a long time. And in some ways, I think about the contemporary Roberts court as the court that is proving that what everything Eric Siegel <laughs> has been saying for the last 15 years is right.
0: Well, uh, I mean,
1: in other words, like you and I, we quibbled in the margins in the past. On, you know, I think you and I basically see the world the same way. But, you know, I think there's some dis- differences in degree. But to the extent you've been crying from the rooftops for, you know, since your book, Supreme Myths, and I guess before that, too. That the Supreme Court is being driven is being driven by values, and that it's va- that it's amassing its own power to assert its values. Um, you know, I, I think that is um, even more true. And and it, you know, I think it was you made that case very powerfully in your book. Um, Thank you. But the, uh, the the current Supreme Court is sort of hammering it home. <laughs> uh, I think even far more so than than the earlier
0: courts. Okay, so we're going to go on a tangent here, Eric, because that's what we do in this podcast. We go on tangents. So. First of all, thank you for that. Um, it's the irony of what you said is 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 is, is gnawing at me though uh, in a positive way because you, I think what you said is the Roberts Court is proving that what you said before you know is is is, is accurate or something like that. What I we haven't we've we haven't talked as much as I'd like in the last couple of years. What I've been doing for the last couple of years is, since hook COVID is making the case that in fact the Roberts Court is really no different from many other courts in the past, and that our current moment of crisis with the Supreme Court is no different from 1801 when Congress canceled the Supreme Court, <laughs> Can- ca- canceled it and said, go home for a year, you can't You can't even meet, <laughs> or in 1857 with Dred Scott, or 1936 when FDR goes on radio and says, we gotta save the Constitution from the court. Um, I think the difference is the left-wing media is so upset about the heavily dominated left-wing media and, and legal profession. It's so upset with the Roberts court that it's failing to see. This is just what the court has been for 250 years. It's just now it's so one-sided and so partisan in your face that it's – but this, this is not new. Um, so I, I think my thesis is what's happening now is not new at all. It's, it, if, we were in, if we were living in 1936 and heard the president of the United States – say, we've got to save the country from the court, like that was pretty serious, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, I guess my view is maybe it's more of a difference in degree mm-hmm. than in kind, but I, I actually do think it's a pretty substantial difference in degree. Huh. Um, you know, I think, you know, when you, and, and I, I remember, um, um, you know, when you wrote the book, you shared a draft with me and we, yeah. we talked about it. And, and I think we sort of mostly agreed but where I push back a little is I thought maybe I was naive, but I thought that there is some real law um, and that where the values come in are in the close cases, um, you know, where, where, where the law isn't clear, which is often the case at the Supreme Court level, because the cases that get there are the hard ones. And it's often the case in constitutional law because constitutional law is underdetermined for a variety of reasons. You know, those are the cases where the values kind of come in as tiebreakers. Um, uh, but I, but I but I believed, uh, and I still do to some extent, that at least in earlier courts, there was you know there was something you could point to as law, and you know the court would fiddle with it. And there you know there's certainly cases where it would break from it, but um, but but law was doing some real work. You know, I think that in a way, the cases that I um, use in my article here which are not constitutional cases, at least not um, on their face, they're statutory cases about the Clean Air Act and about workplace safety and about the Voting Rights Act. You know, Those are cases where you have statutes and they're statutes that are reasonably clear that I like to think that past iterations of the court would have looked at those cases and said, you know, we might or might not like these policies, but we got to apply these statutes uh, um, as, as, as written to further Congress's intent, and I think the kind of wholesale rejection of Congress's handiwork in these cases to advance these, what, again, what I call constitutional conceits, um, is a sort of difference in degree. It, it 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 reflects a court that is bound by law. If it was ever even less, or maybe not even uh, not even at all. Maybe to say that somewhat differently, Uh, you know, it's not like values didn't play a role in statutory interpretation in the past. I think they did. Um, But I do think that there have been past courts where a majority of the justices would apply, try to apply the law in a neutral, uh, nonpartisan way. Um, And in in, in these cases, you just can't Claim that there's anything neutral or nonpartisan um, about it. So you know, again, maybe I'm naive, maybe I'm looking at the past through rose-colored uh, glasses. Um, but um, but 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 I do think um, there there is something different and more pernicious about the current Supreme Court.
0: Yeah, we um, that view is the dominant majority view of people on the left like you and me, and I respectfully dissent, but that's okay. We can disagree. We can disagree on that. Let's get back to your article. Um, and 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 although although I, I must, I do have to say, your article made me think of this. Um, there was a case from the late 19th century under the Sherman Antitrust Act that was technically a statutory interpretation case where the court went out of its way to limit Congress's power because of constitutional concerns. What you're describing is definitely not new in that.
1: No, I, I think that's right. Yeah. So, I, I, I think
0: well, it is yeah. yeah. But going back to your article. Let's let's use the NFIB case. I think that's the easiest, maybe well you, you you can pick, but my view is of the three cases that'll be the easiest and fastest to get the issue out, kind of in a non-weedy way, because the, the Clean Water Act case is so complicated and oh, yeah, the yeah. voting yeah. rights case, I, the statute had exploded.
1: No, I agree. NFIB is a good place to
0: start. Okay, go ahead. So tell the story of that case. Um
1: so um the Occupational Health and Safety Act gives Broad authority to OSHA um, to protect workplace safety, and to um, and it requires OSHA to put in place emergency standards to deal with basically new dangers that arise in the workplace. Um, pursuant to that authority, the Biden uh, OSHA under the Biden administration put in place a policy, uh, a COVID policy that required of employers with 100 or more employees to either ensure that all their workers um, were uh, fully vaccinated for COVID or alternatively that those workers who are unvaccinated test weekly and mask at work. There were some exemptions for people who work exclusively at home or exclusively outdoors, um, but uh, it it, 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 it was a broad policy. Um, that policy was challenged um, as beyond OSHA's authority. Uh, and if you look at the statute, again, whatever you think of the Biden administration's policy here, the statute is awfully broad in, convey- in conferring to OSHA really broad authority to address dangers to workplace health.
0: Can we pause right there just for a second? Because yeah. I want to set the table here. Obviously, to me, and I think to you, not to the court, when Congress is thinking about, okay, we, we we don't know what future emergencies are going to be. We just don't know. We don't know if it's going to be, you know, uh, biological war, whatever it's going to be. We don't know what that's going to be, look like. So we're giving the agency broad discretion to deal with an emergency where maybe Congress won't be able to, either because they're not in session or because it's too hard or whatever it is. Um, and that's, to me, a very re- a very reasonable idea. Like Congress is like, we can't, Handle things quickly. That's not our strength. So if we have to handle things quickly, we need an executive agency to deal with the emergency. And does that make sense to you? It makes sense to me.
1: Well, I, mean, that, I think that's exactly right. I think that's what Congress did. It's yeah. what Congress thought it was doing. Yes. Uh, you know, as I think it was Justice Kagan who put it this way. Congress knows what it doesn't know. Right. It knows that agencies have superior expertise. And as you just put it, it also knows that agencies usually, not always, but usually can act more flexibly and nimbly and deal with new crises as they arise. I think, you know, all of us who have lived through the last several years know that we think of COVID as, uh, as, as, as a crisis. Uh, obviously, people can disagree with what the best response to it is, um, but given all of the veto gates that, Cong- that impede Congress from acting even in normal times, and then add a the top of those, the intense partisan dysfunction that has plagued Congress even more so in recent years, uh, it makes total sense for, con- for Congress to delegate to agencies and essentially say, we know we might not be able to deal with problems in the workplace, new problems that arise in the workplace safety area. We're delegating it to OSHA. Uh, precisely because we don't trust that we're going to be able to do that.
0: And, and I'd like to remind people.
1: <laughs> I just add one, yeah, one other thing, yeah. to that, which is, you know, my, my own view and, I, and your view is that that is uh, sensible governance. Um, but even if it's not, even if we disagree with delegating that kind of authority, that's the decision Congress made. Right. And it very explicitly made that decision. So even if we think Congress shouldn't be doing that, uh, unless we are taking the position that constitutionally Congress cannot do that, which has emphatically not been uh, the law uh, except for one year, 1935. <laughs> it's not been the law in this country for most of our history. Um, um, it, 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 it's a tremendous aggrandizement of judicial power to say, well, just because we think Congress shouldn't be doing that, Congress can't do that, and to reinterpret a clear statute in which Congress did do that.
0: I t- sorry, sorry. I no, 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 That's that's a great point. I, I just wanted to make two quick points um, because I've been reading a lot from the right about how much we bungled the crisis and overreacted to the crisis and all this stuff. I want to remind the audience that a million people died, a million Americans died. So, and and the, Bi- and the Biden administration came into it in the middle. Oh, and actually, towards the beginning of it, in a way. I mean, so th- this was <laughs> like human beings are fallible. And we're dealing with a crisis here where a million people died. So it was But the other thing I want to point out was you said 1935. Um, right. The court in 1935 did a similar type thing, which was one of the things that led FDR to go on the radio, which was the national Twitter of the day and say, we got to save the country from the court like this. Like this is, I mean, that the, the case you're talking about is one of the cases that triggered FDR's you know, meltdown and court packing plan. So anyway, going back to this case. Okay, so so the Biden administration comes up with those rules. What happens next?
1: Um, So the case, you know, I won't get into all the procedural complications, which aren't that interesting, but basically the case ends up at the U.S. Supreme Court and the court interprets the statute so as not to give the agency that authority. And though the court does not explicitly invoke what's called the major questions doctrine, it's pretty clear that the court is relying on this notion of the major questions doctrine. Um, so is it okay? Let, let, let me unpack that just, yes. just briefly. So, um, you know, so we, we, we can talk more about this in a little while if you want to. Um, in my view, there's an old major questions doctrine and a new major <laughs> questions doctrine. The old cases that the court is citing to justify what it's doing now don't actually do what the court is doing now. So I don't think the the sort of precursor cases to the 2022 cases, um, you know, in fact support what the court is doing. Um, so I won't talk about those early cases now. We can talk about yeah. them more later.
0: No, we agree on that. We agree on that.
1: But um, but but the new major questions doctrine, what the Roberts Court is doing in, in this case and in the uh, Clean Air Act case that I mentioned in 2022, is it's essentially saying. Um, where the agency is doing something major, in other words, something of really significant economic or political consequence, um, we think the agency shouldn't be allowed to do that unless Congress has given it very specific instructions to do it. So, for instance, in you know getting back to the NFIB case, the you know the COVID workplace safety case, essentially what the court said is, uh, well, a, a policy that requires all these employers to uh, strongly incent their workers to get vaccinated from COVID is a big, big deal. Uh, I think that's probably right, it is a big deal. Um, But because of that, uh, we're not gonna, we think that's too important a policy for the agency to take on for itself, unless Congress has explicitly authorized the agency to do so. Uh, The response to that might be, well, if you go look at the statute, And and actually, I just pulled it up. So I'll just read the statute if that's okay. It says the Secretary, meaning the Secretary of the Department of Labor, OSHA, shall provide for an emergency temporary standard to take immediate effect if he determines, A, that employees are exposed to grave danger from exposure to substances or agents determined to be toxic or physically harmful or from new hazards, And that such emergency standard is necessary to protect employees from such that that sounds so specific to me. That sounds so specific to me. It's really broad statutory authority to deal with exactly something like this. And it certainly seems to cover a viral pandemic that can (laughs) spread in the workplace as COVID can.
0: That killed a million Um, Americans.
1: But the the court's response to the point you just made that that seems specific is, well, it doesn't mention COVID. Um, That's insane. It doesn't mention covid It was passed decades before there was COVID. Um, But but essentially what the court is saying, for an agency to do something really important, we need Congress to go back to the drawing board and give it precise approval to do it, even though Congress delegated broad authority to the agency in the first place, precisely so that it wouldn't have to do that in
0: the uh, the future. How is Congress supposed to anticipate future emergencies? I mean, how how is it supposed to legislate specifically with regard to unknown future emergencies?
1: Well, I think it's not. Right. Um I, I think the court's point is it wanted Congress in 2021 to pass a statute delegating this kind of authority. Uh you know, again, even though we know there are all kinds of reasons why Congress just doesn't doesn't act that way. Um uh, know, no, so, Eric, I mean, Eric Eric, Eric sorry, sorry Eric,
0: mean, Eric, hold on, sorry. It, wait, the way you put that so eloquently, it made me think you know, I'm on my law faculty when we have this analogy I think is really um I'm going to be not humble, spot on. <laughs> my my faculty, when we have uh, hiring issues, and it turns out that we have a broad policy discussion about some a- aspect of hiring, we always say we're never going to do that in the context of a specific person, right? We're going to have those conversations in the summer outside of the hiring process so we can have a better vantage point kind of without getting intermixed in in, in, in a personal deliberation of a one particular person. And it seems to me, emergencies are fact specific, like you can't, you don't wanna have the discussion of what to do in the emergency for the first time during the emergency. You wanna have a plan before the emergency, which means there has to be flexibility, right? There has to be.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, and I think that also gets back to the expertise point, which is in addition to you know, hyper-partisanship in Congress, in addition to veto gates that make it very hard for Congress to act at all, um, you know, OSHA
0: has significantly
1: greater expertise over how to handle workplace safety issues than
0: Congress does. And thus can act quicker.
1: Uh, and and usually is going to be able to act quicker. You know, Congress uh, necessarily uh, is, is a generalist body. Uh, it has to oversee a million different policy areas. You know, OSHA can just focus narrowly on workplace right. safety. Um, you know, so I, for that reason, uh, you know, additionally, Um, I think it's fairly loony to say, well, every time there's a new crisis, we uh, expect Congress to step in and act. And and I think what's really driving this is, uh, and I talk about this in the paper a bit, is a really libertarian vision of our Constitution. Is an idea that the national government should have very limited powers and that uh, regulation, is uh, s- presumptively disfavored in our system. So that, uh, and n- neutering administrative agencies is, is one way of accomplishing that broader libertarian, uh, broader libertarian goal. But one of the ironies I point out in the paper is, it's not just, and, and, and Professor Lemley points this out in, in, in his piece as well, it's not just agencies that Congress is, that the court is limiting, it's Congress too. Yep. Um, you know, one of the other examples in my paper is the Brnovich case about the Voting Rights Act, where Congress did act, and it uh, passed a very broad statute to protect against racial discrimination in voting, and uh, the court, an opinion by Justice Alito, completely rewrites uh, this, the statute, thereby effectively neutering uh, Congress's ability to deal with this really, really serious problem. So um, I think this limit this vision of very limited national power, this sort of libertarian vision of how our government should act, is you know this sort of mega constitutional conceit that is driving what I think of as really just dishonest statutory interpretation.
0: So Eric, one week at, one week after Trump was elected, one week, I wrote in 2016, I wrote a blog post for Dorf on Law, um, kind of answering the question, where is the Supreme Court heading? Assuming Trump gets to one, two, or three picks, we all knew he was going to get you know one or two, probably ended up getting three. And what I said in that piece was he's going to have to deal with abortion because he because of the campaign promise he made. But that his mean we, we all know Trump doesn't care about abortion. Um, what Trump did care about was deregulation. And what I wrote was the single most um, important characteristic that. Trump's going to look for in, in, in lower court judges and and Supreme Court judges is an anti-regulatory get your hands off my company stance, because that's what Trump did actually believe like that. Trump did have a worked out set of values on that issue. Let me, let me finish real quick. And what I want to say about that is situating that in a historical context. That's what presidents do. Right. I mean, FDR put people on the court who would let his new, new Deal programs go, go forward. Um uh, you know, Clinton won, Jimmy Carter wanted to put women and people of color on the court and put more women and people of color on the court, Jimmy Carter, on the lower courts, excuse me, than all the other presidents in American history combined. Um, what Trump wanted was deregulatory judges, and he got three of them. Is that a fair perspective on all this? Uh, yeah,
1: I mean, I guess I have a couple of reactions. Yeah. You know, one is, you know, everything you just said of of, of Trump, I think you could also say President Reagan uh, in the 1980s. Excellent. True. Agreed. Uh, you know, Reagan... Um, was elected in part because he appealed to social conservatives. Um, You know, I I think Reagan, more so than any presidential candidate uh, before him, made a big deal out of abortion and Roe and religious liberty. And, you know, to some extent, I think the Republican-Democratic culture war divide that, um, you know, that we've all grown up with and are so used to really began during the Reagan campaign that it was Reagan who sort of realized that he could appeal to those socially, culturally conservative Southerners and recapture the South. Nixon had done that to an extent, but then Jimmy Carter won the South back in 1976. Right. And, you know, so he appealed to those values. Um, But, you know, Reagan was a great actor, and I don't know that he believed in a whole lot of that himself. He realized that he needed to... uh, to somewhat placate those voters, um, but he also was wary about embracing, um, you know, the religious right too much, because he also, you know, Reagan had a pretty broad coalition. I mean, Reagan won by um, a pretty big landslide in 1980, and some of that was, you know, the Iran hostage affair, and Carter was, you know, sort of a feckless president for a number of reasons. But but Reagan had broad. Uh, um, Reagan had broad appeal, and he didn't want to lose that. So, um, but you know, much like what you're saying about Trump, I think what Reagan really was a true believer in was deregulation and having a national government that wasn't
0: and, too. And actually, too Eric, I, I'm I'm constitutionally required once a podcast to mention Judge Posner. So to support your to support your thesis, there, the reason Richard Posner and Bork, and to some degree Scalia, were all put on the on the on the on, on the circuit courts. Was actually mostly about antitrust. Reagan wanted to end antitrust regulation, pretty much, and just another form of deregulation. And um, and 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 really, that's what Posner—that's what his specialty was. He worked for the antitrust. Of, I mean, but it wasn't right. just Posner. It was Posner, Scalia, yeah. and Bork. All three of them. Had-
1: <laughs> Although po- Judge Posner was was so smart that. You know, he was an expert in things that weren't his specialty fair, as well.
0: Fair, fair. Uh, but he was picked uh, for his antitrust views. He was. Right. I mean, that's anyway. So I, you're, you're, it was a great point you made about Reagan. No, was but, so, I was. I mean, that's sports? just
1: one point yeah. I make is that I don't think it's just a Trump thing. I think it goes goes back to Reagan. You know, the other point I would make, which I is really just quibbling on the margins, which is, um, you know, I you know I think of Trump as a complete narcissist. Yeah. I don't know how much he believes in anything. Um, And I do think to a large extent, he was letting the Federalist Society, Leonard Leo and others, drive the judicial nominations process. And um, and he he didn't let them. He he, he didn't let them. He gave it to them. He gave it to them. Right. So, you know, so to that and and, and I think um, both the culture war, you know, anti-Roe, religious liberty, Second Amendment side of it and the deregulation libertarian side of it are 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 both very important to yeah. the sort of federalist society um base. Um so so I you know in terms of you know, yes, that libertarian strain was something that I think was very important in the judicial selection, but I think the culture war stuff was too, you know, as you know reflected obviously in, in the Dobbs decision.
0: Yeah. All right. So Eric, I, I, I want to again repeat the title, Constitutional Conceits in Statutory Interpretation. I recommend this article to everybody interested in what's happening with the Supreme Court when it comes to statutory interpretation. The way you the way you view this as constitutional concerns driving it, I think, is really smart and really impressive. And and I think this is going to be a very, as many of your articles are, very important.
1: Can I, can I just jump in and say yeah. one thing really quickly, yeah. which is I'm not allowed to post it on SSRN yet. Okay. Um, so it's not actually available yet. Oh, no. Okay. It's, being, it's being published by the Administrative Law Review, and I didn't know this, but there are rules—I I can post on SSRN after it's come out.
0: Okay, so look for it, people. I'll, okay, it's
1: due to come out in September. So
0: okay. um, I, I
1: really appreciate the. Um, the you will the send me the link
0: in September, and I—and since you, since you are since you are amazingly somehow not on social media, I will absolutely. I
1: have an email though. I know what you
0: email. <laughs> I will pause it. But, but I, I wanted to move off of it because there's something else I want to talk to you about that I've been meaning, wanting to talk to you about on my podcast now since I started it during COVID. Um, and that's an old article, you, relatively old article you wrote, that I thought um, was just so important. And by the way, I cite it all the time, talking to people in my work. And The name of that article is The Rhetoric of Constitutional um, Absolutism. And I'm going to repeat that. This one people can find today if they want to. Uh, the rhetoric of constitutional absolutism and your um, i 'll let you talk about your thesis, but I, I thought this was a way of, of viewing what, how the court does its job, that was really accurate and really smart, and it's one of those points that a lot of people already kind of know but don't really accept. so what was that article? What, what was the main point you made there?
1: Well, thank you again for for the overly generous words about it. Um, So so the main point in that article was when you pick up a Supreme Court opinion, most of the time, at least in constitutional law, most of the time, and I think in other areas of law too, but I'm dealing with constitutional cases, most of the time the opinions are written as though the answer is clear. Even if it's a complicated case, the justice is right as though they're certain that they are right um and and then you turn the page and you realize this is a 5-4 case with a dissent that's just as certain that it's right <laughs> as the majority is that, right. that it's right um so i wanted to kind of explore that sort of self-certainty that you see in so many supreme court um uh constitutional opinions um and in a way, it's pretty puzzling because, I mean, you and I have both taught constitutional law for a long time. And, you know, as I think I mentioned earlier, constitutional law is pretty underdeterminate in, in many cases, you know, not always constitutional. It says each state gets two senators and
0: president has to be 35. Uh, but, Eric, hold um, on. That's constitutional law. That's not constitutional litigation. This is a new distinction. Right. I, this is a distinction I've been making. We have not focused right. too much enough on that distinction.
1: Right, and, and I think like Sandy Levinson at um, at Texas. I don't know if you've had him on your show, but you yes. know he talks about. Um, I might get the the phraseology he uses wrong, but what he calls the constitution of conversation, yes. and the, yes. um, I, 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 I yeah. um, you know the constitution of settlement. I yes, think. I might have, have the w- yeah. words wrong, but but those are in a way different constitutions. So, you know, ninety nine percent of the litigated issues, or most of the litigated issues, certainly the ones that make it all the way up to the Supreme Court. There's really not a clear answer, and one of the reasons there are a lot of reasons for that. But one of the reasons is there are just so many factors that go into constitutional reasoning. You know, Philip Bobbitt had that famous modalities of constitutional interpretation, where you look at the text of the Constitution, you look at history, you look at precedent, you look at structure, and pragmatic reasons. And a, those are a lot of factors. I think he had seven of them. So. You can imagine cases where some factors cut one way and other factors cut another way. And B, oftentimes within those factors there, um, it's not clear which way it comes out. You know, history is a great example of that. You know, notwithstanding the current justice, some of the current justices infatuation with originalism, a lot of the times the originalist history just does not yield a clear answer. And nor does the original public meaning. In other words, even if we, try to figure out what the text uh, as originally meant, it often does not yield a clear answer in the cases that we care about now. Uh, in fact, it often doesn't yield an answer at all. So, you know, um, for, for all those reasons, I think often constitutional law is underdeterminate, and yet you read these Supreme Court opinions as though the answer is crystal clear. So the purpose of that article is sort of to explore that a bit, and to ask, well, why are the justices writing these opinions with this pretense of certainty um, in, 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 in a world where things are far less certain than they're pretending that they are? And B, you know, what are the costs of that? And you know, I, I wanna be careful not to overstate it. As I think I say in the article, I don't think the fate of the union uh, rides on how they write these opinions, uh, but I do think it's uh, there is a bit of dishonesty and it is a bit problematic when the court pretends that these easy, these answers are a lot easier than they in fact are. And it also um, in a way um, sort of entrenches the culture wars even more because there's sort of a winner-take-all philosophy. When you get these Supreme Court opinions and it makes it sound like one side is totally right and the other side is totally wrong, I think the sort of cultural reaction to that is different than if you have a Supreme Court opinion which acknowledges, okay, one side has to win, this side wins, um, but we acknowledge there's some, you know, there's some good arguments on on both sides of the ledger. Um, interestingly, you might not agree with this, but you know, when you listen to um, Supreme Court arguments these days, I think of the of the recent Trump appointees. The one who's best at recognizing both sides of it is actually Justice Kavanaugh. Um, He, uh, not all of his opinions read that way, although some of them do, Um, but, you know, on the sort of absolutist scale, you know, I think someone like Justice Alito, Justice Gorsuch, Justice Thomas, they're always sure they're right. Right. You get the sense that they've decided what they think before they read the briefs, before they read the precedent, before argument, and, you know, especially someone like Justice Alito, um, you know, he almost approaches oral argument like an advocate would. He's he's trying to make his point. Yeah. Where you know, I give someone like Justice Kavanaugh, and actually to some extent Justice Barrett, credit, and I think, you know, at least in argument, you can hear them wrestling with both sides of it um, a little bit more. Um, although sometimes I'm them dismayed at the the opinions that,
0: that they joining <laughs> So I want to ask you. I want to ask you about this piece. Um, again, the, the, the rhetoric of constitutional absolutism. So I think there's all. I think there's actually a substantive component here. Eric. It's, um, you were mostly concerned with the rhetoric and, and the overheatedness of it and all that. And that's all, I think that's all exactly right. But I think there's a substantive component. If if most people still think, and I'm not sure they they do, but I think the Supreme Court justices were raised on this kind of mentality, that they're not supposed to strike down laws unless, you know, it's pretty clearly unconstitutional. That's not what they do. I mean, I stake my career on that. I know
1: that's what you think they should do.
0: Yeah. Um, but, but 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 there's still – one does not have to be a disbeliever in judicial power like me or Chris Sprigman or, or, or the former dean of Stanford or Mark Tushnet. Um, one can be a believer in, in strong judicial power but still think if you're going to strike a law down as unconstitutional, you have to be pretty sure. And I think because of that, that concern might drive some of the rhetoric. If, in fact, we admit in the first paragraph and the last paragraph this is a hard case. Reasonable people can disagree. The dissent raises some good points. We think we have answers to those points, but you know, it's 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 like you and I talk. You know, it's you know, it's complex. Um, the analogy I give to my students is: Is Godfather one better than Godfather two? Um, well, a lot of things are going to go into that. I mean, one had Marlon Brando, one had Robert De Niro. You know, I mean, how do you feel about those two things, and and so on and so forth? That's a hard. To me, it is a very hard question whether Godfather 1 is, heart, is better or not than Godfather 2, we everybody thinks both are better than Godfather 3. Everybody. I've never met a person who doesn't think that. So my point there is they, I think they write their opinions this way partly to show we're not going to strike down a law unless we're really sure, so we're really sure. And so I think there's a substantive element to the rhetoric, which I think is really unfortunate, because then when you read the dissent, as you say, fair-minded people will go, wait a minute. This is not clear. <laughs> this is actually really hard. And really smart people are disagreeing. Really smart people are disagreeing on the answer. So why are they saying it's so easy? And, and I, so do you think I'm right about that? That one there's many reasons, but one of the reasons is then they can strike it down. Because if it's hard, they shouldn't strike it down.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think that's a, that, that that that's a really good point, is that if they acknowledge that it's hard it makes it seem more like a judicial overreach if they say this is hard, but we're still striking it down. And that belies the language of judicial restraint that many of them, uh, certainly the chief justice like to, like to invoke. So, yeah, I think, I think that, I think that's a very good point. Um, You know, I think to some extent that they also think if we say it's difficult, that could make the law uncertain. Right. Um. and, 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 the law needs clarity, people need clarity to organize their dealings. Um, And, you know, as I say in the article, I'm I'm a little skeptical of that, that second explanation, because I think you can say something is difficult, but still issue a clear, clear ruling. Um, uh, You know, I think you and I and lots of scholars try to do that with our scholarship, try to write nuanced, complicated pieces that uh, do fair justice to the complexity of a problem, but still come out pretty strong with a you know, with a particular thesis um, and, and, the, and the justices, I think, could do that, though they choose not to. So, yeah, I, th- I think your point is an excellent one.
0: Um, and what you just absolutely. said triggered another thought of mine, you always do, um, which is from so now, I want to go back to NFIB um, versus Sibitler, the first Obamacare case. And okay. on the on the issue of whether Medicaid was an unconstitutional coercion of the states, even though they had six years to prepare for this alleged coercion, um Roberts and Scalia both signed on in different opinions to the same idea, which was um it might be necessary, but it's not proper. And their definition of proper was when it more or less changes dramatically the structure of our government. What does that mean? Nobody knows. It's incredibly touchy feely. Um that I guess it's the inverse of what you were saying. They were dogmatic about sending out into the world a flexible standard that could be manipulated by anyone in the world. I mean, what does it mean to reformulate how our government works? I mean, you know, I, that, that's not even a the fact.
1: That it's and, that was inconsi- and was inconsistent with the way we thought about the
0: necessary yeah. proper
1: clause, And for that matter, the Commerce Clause since yeah. 1937.
0: Really. Yes. Really amazing. Um, All right.
1: yeah, I, I, agree. I, I agree with that. We have like um,
0: five minutes left, so I want to put you on okay. the spot. Um, sure. one of the, so you've written about um, constitutional conceits and statutory, inter- or you're writing about it, it's coming out in September, you've written a lot about con law um, I, I wish we had time to talk about deference, because you and I have had some good conversations in the past, and you've made some great contributions there, but because we're running out of time I want to talk about lethal injections and what I'd like you to um, I really respect your work there and what I'd like you to do, um, Corinna Lane was on my podcast a, a while back oh, yeah. and, and Corinna is a friend of ours and and, and Very into death penalty stuff, of course. Eric, can you just inform the people listening, how is lethal injection being used? What's the problem with it? And why are we, I think from what I can tell, quite routinely torturing people to death?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the problem basically is that many, not all, but many states that use lethal injection have adopted it thoughtlessly and have no idea what they're doing. That's so scary. Um, (laughs) um, Yeah, I mean, it is. I think, um, you know, I think there are some people who would say that they just don't care whether someone who has been sentenced to death suffers or not. Um, um, But uh, I think the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution um, uh, says the constitution cares about not torturing people to death. Yep. Um, yeah. And I, uh, you know, my own personal view is that we should care that, uh, that we as a society should be better than uh, the people who have committed the worst, uh, the, the, the the most, the most heinous crimes. Um, you know, but, you know, in a way I comment the lethal injection problem almost through an administrative law lens Um, And what I'm sort of fascinated by is that many states time and again have proven themselves to be completely incompetent when it comes to lethal injection. They don't understand the drugs they've selected. They don't understand the risks those drugs entail. They don't hire qualified personnel to design or implement the, um, the lethal injection protocols. They don't Monitor what's going on. They don't know enough to recognize problems when they arise, and so uh, they. Many states have used a paralytic, so it par- as one of the drugs, so it paralyzes the inmate, so that it can be that the inmate is experiencing excruciating pain, but no one would know who's watching because the inmate is paralyzed. You know, so all of these problems, and you know, getting back to some of the administrative law stuff that I guess we we're talking earlier about, right, with the, with the other piece. Um, and getting to the deference point that, that you raised, you know, typically one of the reasons why courts defer to state actors, including administrative agencies, is expertise. The idea is, well, um, the agency knows what it's doing, we courts don't, so we're gonna defer to them. In the lethal injection landscape, courts routinely defer to the states and say, well, we need to defer, we don't know anything about this. But the states don't know anything about it, even know less about it. They have no idea um, what they're doing. And again, it's complicated. Some states are better than others. But the track record in so many states of complete incompetence um, um, is is, is really startling. And then that courts would continue to just green light what states are doing uh, reflexively without actually looking at the record and saying, oh, it really is actually is troubling. Like they use this drug to anesthetize the inmate, but this drug can't anesthetize the inmate. The fact that they're not trying to second guess it is is really extraordinary. Again, given the track record of manifesting competence in, in many
0: states. Eric, I know. Uh, thank you. That was brilliant. That was, that was wonderful. Um, I, I know you, neither you nor I consider ourselves human rights scholars in any sense of the term. Uh, I know I don't consider myself that, but um, I don't think you do either, but yeah. But I don't think one has to be a human rights scholar to suggest that um, using a method of execution, leaving aside the whole issue of whether we should be executing people, since most Western democracies don't, but, but, or, but leaving aside that issue, at the very least, you would think our country, our society, our culture would view it as a gross human rights violation to torture even the worst among us to death. And I have a lot of people telling me, even since you wrote your piece or pieces, um, I have a guy on Twitter who writes me all the time and I really like him and he's very thoughtful, who's very much against the death penalty. And he has lethal, terrible lethal injection stories like every month. Like it seems like, like a bot's lethal injection here. In a, and And the court seems to be completely insensitive to this, right?
1: Completely insensitive, completely insensitive. And, you know, I think what's driving the court is – um, well, one concern about uh, victims, and two, sort of callousness towards people who are on death row. But in a way, above all of that, I think what's driving it is uh, a fear that litigants are using the judicial system to gum up the works and delay executions. Um, and they're, to be honest, they're not wrong about that. Sure. Um, Capital counsel have an ethical obligation to advocate zealously for their clients, and they try to do everything they can to keep their clients alive, you know, unless the client basically says, you you know, please stop. Um, I want to be executed. Um, And, you know, I I get the court's concern about, um, you know, know, bad faith litigation. But what I find so disheartening is the court is so concerned about that, that they've refused to screw, To scrutinize what's actually going on, and they're ignoring, you know, what um, I think. Anyone who knows anything would agree are at least in some states very, very serious problems. Now, to some extent, maybe the plaintiffs' lawyers are somewhat to blame for it because I think some lethal injection protocols are more dangerous than others. Um, The three-drug protocols are far more dangerous than one-drug protocols, uh, but lawyers. Who have cap, you know, who represent inmates on death row are bringing the challenges, regardless of what which lethal injection procedure.
0: Which again, is there is there ethical obligation? I
1: think which is there ethical obligation. I just um, but you know, rather than taking a close look at it and saying, well, this procedure actually seems problematic, this one less so. The courts are just drawing the doctrine in a way to make it almost impossible to bring these claims at all. Again, they're. They're afraid of delay. They're afraid of using litigation to um to gum up the works. Um, but they've done so in a way that in my view just completely abdicates their judicial role to make sure that the constitution in this area isn't being violated.
0: Yeah. No, I think I think that's great. And I I, mean, I think that's right. And I think that I think I think your lethal injection work is really important. I have one last question. It's a big one. <laughs> it's a big one. I didn't I didn't tell I was gonna ask you this question. Um but in, in rethinking and reflecting on your lethal injection work um, and, and the number of tweets I, I get a day about death penalty and how terrible it's being administered in the country. Um, and then, of course, all of the gun stuff going on. And frankly, my doctor's office was shot up a couple of weeks ago. That was my doctor. Oh, my goodness. That was my doctor in Georgia when we had the gun. Incident. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, Is he okay? Yeah. D- 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 yeah. But no, I mean, I, I, a couple people died, I think. I mean, my, my doctor's okay. But oh. it was a visiting doctor who got shot, I think. But, 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 but. So, so I've been reflecting a lot on, 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 on that because I, I hit really close to home. My daughter, my kid's school had to go on lockdown because of it because it was close to that office. And it was, so, you know, my, my eighth grader is like in the basement of their school hiding from a you know lockdown from you know a possible gun shooter, you know, two miles away. My question to you is this, because um, you have done a lot of thinking about lethal injections and death penalty and, and some on guns, I know. I feel like our country somehow has a different view, this is not a legal question, Eric, um, has a different view about violence than a lot of other countries. Like, I think we like, vi- we, we don't dislike violence enough. I wish we hated violence more. And I think that comes out in the Second Amendment, in gun culture, um, in lethal injection culture. I mean, other, I think other countries would have, would be up in uproar about the lethal injection stuff happening in this country. And we just basically go, eh, it's it's bad. What can we do about it? Do you think I'm right about that? Do you think that we and there's no right answer to this, but I just think our view on violence is it's a John Wayne mentality, I think, still.
1: No, I think that it's right. I think we are a far more violent society than you know most other countries that we like to think of ourselves as similar to. Yeah. I, you know, I I think you know this. I was teaching in England last summer. And, you know, when you, um, and I went to a conference in Portugal, and, you know, when you talk to people, lawyers from other parts of the world, they're astounded at at our kind of gun culture. And, you know, to the extent that, you know, I've met people who have said, you know, from other countries who said, well, I was thinking about going to study in the States or moving to the States, but I'm afraid of getting shot. (laughs) And, you know, I, I think it is an example of um, American ex, ex, exceptionalism that we um, are an exceptionally violent, um, violent culture in, 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 in ways. And it is it is it is terrifying. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I, I guess I'll also point out that crime, including violent crime, even though it ticked back up a little bit in recent years, is way, way down compared to what it was you know two and a half decades ago or three decades ago um whenever it is so um you know as, as the the mass shootings are, are awful and, and and terribly worrisome and the fact that it's so easy to get these military style weapons is 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 horrifying um uh, but in many ways we're a safer country than we were you know in 1985 or 1990 but it um but it, it is still uh it is still very Worrisome, and I think you know you're, you're probably right that there is, um, it is sort of part of our culture. I a friend of mine, this is not really related to law anyway, but a friend of mine, you know, recently sent me um, Cormac McCarthy's novel *Blood Meridian*,
0: yeah, um,
1: which is a really well-written and fascinating novel in a lot of ways. I hadn't read it before, um, but it's it's so it's so violent, and I in a way I think that's the point of it is that you know it it's it's set on the Texas-Mexican border in the mid 19th century. And, um, it's, it's part of our, it's part of our heritage, you know, in ways you could look at other countries, you know, Europe was, had tons of wars for centuries, um, but they've moved past it in a way that, that, that we haven't.
0: Yeah. I think, I think that, I don't know that, that, that John Wayne is best way I can put it, that John Wayne, you know, shoot him up mentality is just, it's, it's, it's coming back to hurt us and haunt us. I think in a lot of, ways across the board. But I think it is a partial, just a partial explanation for how we're still allowing states to torture people to death. And everything, I'm, everything I know about the issue is that there are times, not every execution, of course, but there are botched executions and even successful executions where the person was quite literally tortured. to death. And I just, yeah,
1: well, I, I guess one, well, you know, one more thing I'll say about that. And I, 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 I know we have to end yeah. soon, but, um, you know, one of the dangers of lethal injection is that it hides the brutality of executing a human being, you know, with something like hanging or the firing squad, the violence inherent in taking a life is laid bare for everyone to see. Um, And lethal injection sort of anesthetizes um, executions in a way that I think sort of, um, you know, makes the public think, it numbs the public into thinking, well, this is just a serene, painless, sterile uh, medical, um, um, uh, you know, medical event. And uh, in a way, it's sort of a dis, uh, and and especially the fact that because some of them use paralytics, even if it's a botched execution, which inflicted terrible pain, uh, people who are viewing it wouldn't know that. Right. Um. You know, so, you know, in, 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 in a way, lethal injection is dishonest about the violence that is uh, that is inflicting. And I sometimes wonder if we had to move away from lethal injection because states are having a hard time getting the drugs for a variety right. of reasons. I actually wrote a piece about that as well. Yeah. Um, you know, would societal attitudes towards the death penalty change measurably? If we went back to a more overtly violent
0: method, yeah, I, I, um, Judge um, Kaczynski before his fall from, before he he had to resign due to sexual harassment issues. Oh, right. that's right. Um, he he's made that he called for the firing squad, so at least people could see the brutality and not hide it. Anyway, that's right. Eric, Eric, thank you so much for being oh, here. This was so much fun. Um, you and I talked before the podcast. We're going to catch up privately <laughs> later this week. But this was this was really good, and um, I hope we get to see each other in person sometime soon.
1: Well, thank you so much for the invitation. It was, it's always a great pleasure talking to you. And uh, it's, it's it's been a great honor to be on,
0: on well, your podcast. Th- thanks for coming on.